Okay, this is a 30-second commercial, and I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you, but please stay with me. In just 15 minutes, you could save 15% or more on car insurance. This company has been offering great rates and great service for over 75 years, and anytime you need help, you can speak to one of their trained specialists 24-7. That company is Geico. Go to geico.com today. Sorry for all the numbers. And in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, I'm out of time. Now, Podcast One brings you Spike's Car Radio. A downloadable Cars and Coffee, hosted by writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast, Spike Ferriston. Now, here's Spike. Hey everybody, Spike's Car Radio. Thank God it's Wednesday. We are together again. And, uh, you know, usually we talk about cars today. We're going to be talking about comedy. My other love. And with us today, we have Dennis Miller, host of the Dennis Miller Option here at Podcast One. Um, new episodes of Dennis Miller Option here at Podcast One are every Tuesday and Thursday. Hello, comedian Dennis Miller. How are you? What's happening, Rod <laughs> Nuts, Spike Ferriston? <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, Dennis is the instrument of my comedic creation. Without Dennis Miller, there is no Spike Ferriston. Without this person that you're listening to, and where, where you're in Santa Barbara right now, are you in your living room? Are you in your slippers? Are you wearing your bathrobe? Paint a picture for us. I am standing as I was when I met you, right <laughs> as the gatekeeper. It's the Stargate SKG, <laughs> ready to usher you in to the great fame and fortune. Back, back in, I believe, 1986, somewhere around the 12th or 13th season of Saturday Night Live, I was an intern and um, then went on from being an intern to the receptionist. And I had a desk right in front of the great Dennis Miller, who was hosting Weekend Update. And Dennis was so gracious, he, he would look at my jokes, something that I'm not sure I would do for anyone else right now. I would write Weekend Update jokes. I would turn around. I'd bring them in. He'd read them. He'd give me some uh, feedback. Then he started doing them. And I, I became addicted, Dennis. I became addicted like the first time someone smokes crack to this process, watching you do a joke on the air, something that I had written. Spike, I remember uh, that, that feeling so weird because I've ended up telling jokes all these years, but I do remember when Shandling used to guest host for Carson mm -hmm. and just as friends, not on, you know, it was there was no meter running or anything. We'd go out and order whole bunches of food, have whole bunches of papers, and we'd get there for the show at around noon, and we'd sit there, and we'd eat dim sum, and we'd write jokes. And when he went out and told one of my jokes on The Tonight Show, I, I was a guy who had already scored. You know, I was a weekend update anchor, so I knew the feeling. I, I was over the moon. I couldn't believe hearing it from somebody else. It was such a great thrill. So I know what you say when you talk about it's very addictive to watch somebody go out and kill with a joke. It was cool. Well, well, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm growing up in a blue-collar town in Massachusetts with parents who aren't paying attention to me. But my dad is just glued to a TV set constantly, and it's always mm. about comedy. So the very, I think it's connected psychologically to the idea that I'm pretty sure he's probably watching this and there's this famous comedian reading my joke and i'm finally no, connecting with so this guy. when you told him were you, was he thrilled or he was he thrilled must, this yeah. is the yeah i mean being in comedy is pretty much the only thing that got my dad's respect <laughs> when well. i was on the tv he started treating me like a normal person well, listen, Spike, you, you were uh, perfect because you were like uh, not a sweat act outside. You know what I mean? Like there's some people 
And uh, I'm not trying to be overly cool here, but folks, when you're doing Saturday Night Live, you're pretty much every week bluffing your way through a gladiator school, <laughs> hoping that you don't get whacked at any given moment. Exactly. So when you're, so when you have people come up to you who kind of you can barely swim, and they're asking you to buddy breathe with you, it's like you usually just are polite and keep moving. But like Spike, like I said, you were such a low impact cat. You knew the drill. You were cool about it. It wasn't like, you know, you made so much of it that you thought, oh, I don't even want to go down this road because now I've got this kid's esteem in my hand. You know, you knew you had good stuff and you were a cool kid. And so you were an easy one. Carvey and, we, Carvey and I were right next to each other and you were right up front. And that was a little, uh, that was a hub of activity over there because. Uh, everybody would come to Dana's thing to try to uh, get get him in sketches because they right. knew that. The, so it was a, it was a cool little corner we had there. So let's talk about because I still you know there's so much I know about you but so much I don't. I I wasn't even clear how you came to be on Saturday Night Live. Take us through how you were discovered by Lauren Michaels and the crew. Well, they were going to have an open call at, uh, or no, maybe like 30 people. And I must have been close to 30, and I'm not doing that fake thing. I was a pretty good comic, but Mitzi was not a big fan of mine. And it was an open call at the comedy store in that main room. And I think it might have been the first time I'd ever gotten on in that main room. Somehow I got one of the 30 spots. And, uh, and like I said, I remember when Mitzi first looked at me. Somebody must have been an angel for me there, benevolent, uh, because... When Mitzi first looked at me, I was with Jerry. I might have told you this on my show. We went back, and she said, honey, you've got a clever mind. You're not really a comedian, but if you insist on doing it, wear more sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sort of crestfallen, and we got out in the parking lot. And This is a podcast, right? We can Yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever okay. you want. Well, we get out, and I go, Christ, Jerry, this is going to be so hard. He's a Oh, fuck it. She told you to wear more sweaters. You're going to take that serious? You know what I mean? He was already Jerry before he was Jerry was Jerry. You know what I mean? He like right. had the whole thing wired as far as self-esteem and who you let encroach on yours and who you don't. So anyway. Um, did he, did, he, did he have any interest in, in hosting or being a part of Saturday Night Live at that point? Did, I don't think so. Uh, 30 I can't comedians. say for sure, but looking back on it, Jerry was always a purist. I don't think he was – thinking about uh, being in sketches as much as he mm -hmm. was thinking about being his generation's Bill Cosby. And I'm not using that facetiously. I'm just saying the best mm -hmm. comedian of his time, you know? I mean, he was a, always – he always thought stand-up, and I, I don't know him as well today. I, I assume he thinks the sitcom is a viable form, but I'd be willing to guesstimate, and you know him better than I do now, that he still thinks stand-up is the most <laughs> noble profession. <laughs> So I don't know if he was looking to be a cast member on SNL. I don't remember him at that uh, audition. But Franken and Davis were to be the executive producers of the show, or the producers, and Lauren was going to be the executive producer. They were easing their way back in after, I think it was thought to be somewhat of a debacle under Gene Dominion and uh, mm -hmm. not so much under Ebersol, but that was a more business-driven thing. Lauren was coming back, and it was like, uh, you know, there would be the sense of salon again. He sends Franken and Davis out. I do a pretty good thing, which gets me to the next level, which is they fly you to New York City to do a more strenuous audition. But what did you do, uh, what did you do in that first audition? Were no, you just doing your I, act? I must have did seven or eight minutes of my act. And you, you, you don't do voices at that point? You're not doing characters? You're... What, the, what are you kidding me, Spike? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> you don't remember. I'm asking. I didn't do handstands. I told jokes for seven minutes. And 
they were, <laughs> you know, they might have been uh, revealed some sort of sense of current events or something. Well, when we hear about when we hear about the Saturday Night Live audition, usually you hear that you've got to come out there with three to five characters and you know five this was minutes. A different on. creature. This is a different. Night. Okay, uh, I think they just wanted to see funny people that they might bring in. The mm-hmm. fact that it was at, at the comedy store and not the Groundlings. Uh, tells me that the, this might have been them looking for a different, maybe even for a weekend update. Time. Were there you know any other I mean? any other future cast members in that session, that first session? I remember Carvey was there that night, but I don't remember him then. I don't know what the backstory is on him not doing the show that year. He might have had, uh, at, at some point, I think he was in a fucking balsa wood helicopter with James Farantino doing Blue Thunder, the <laughs> TV show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which you have to get Carvey on here to tell you that story because you know there, he plays some guy named Reno Fairwave or something. I don't even know. He's like the computer nerd in the back of the helicopter. Jimmy Farantino's up front. He's in the denouement of his career. He can't believe he's in a fucking balsa wood helicopter out at Warner's. It's like a thousand <laughs> degrees. They're shaking it because they've got incoming flak and he won't talk to Carvey. Anyway, it's brilliant. But I, I think that might be why Carvey doesn't go the first year. Mm-hmm. So um, get called back to New York and I'm flying back on an L-1011, I remember, because they were the biggest planes in the universe. There's like five seats across the middle and then two on each outside of the aisle. And I was in not a great flyer, and I'm in the middle seat, and I'm plunked down next to this guy, John Lovitz. And uh, I think Damon was on that plane, too, Damon Wayne's. But I'm sitting next to Lovitz, and we're flying in, and I go, so what do you do? And he says, uh, well, I'm in the Groundlings. I don't even know what the Groundlings is at that point. And I go, really? And he's, he's, I said, well, what, what are you thinking of, like you just asked, what are you thinking of for this audition? He said, well, I have a character I do that's pretty popular in the show. It's called uh, The Liar. And I go, well, tell me about it. And he goes, well, he he, uh, lies about everything. And uh, he's got a catchphrase uh, where he says, uh, at the end of every lie, that's the ticket. And I'm sitting there. And literally, for the first time in the flight, I'm not nervous because it's like Jerry says. Uh, you, it, Lovitz is all of a sudden a gazelle exhibiting a limp on the Serengeti plane. I know I can take him. <laughs> Jerry always says that about bad drivers. So was, I know I can take him. I'll take him when I want and uh, why well, get uptight about it. So uh, I know I can take Lovitz. I think he's a madman. <laughs> Little do I know that he's on—he's like a savant. But right. it, you know, imagine somebody intellectually explaining the liar to you without doing it. It's mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. I'm thinking, Jesus, SNL must be about to go off if this is the crew we're flying in. And, uh, but but and everybody's seated together on this plane. John and I were. Just, no, just I remember Damon was some. Yeah. So he's down. You're all kind of eyeing each other, right? Yeah, but uh, but is it wasn't a little at least a little comforting knowing this guy does something completely different than what I do. Yeah, and it sounded ineffectual. <laughs> it and still if does. You've met John, you know, like it's not like you meet John and you think you're with Tyrone Power. I'm looking at him thinking, Christ, this I'm made. So uh, we go, we go to New York, and you do a, uh, and here's where it gets freaky. And uh, and I, I want to circle back around to the Lovitz thing to tell you how you can misread people. Um, they then rent studio space. You almost feel like you're in all that jazz or something where you look out the window and you can see where the Olive Garden is now in Times Square, that sort of feel. <laughs> and you go in and Lauren's sitting there. You haven't met Lauren at this point. Oh, dear. And uh, he, um, he's he got, like, friends and Eugene Lee and all these cats. Mm-hmm. Lauren always wanted to get the, the opinions of the whole team, uh, set designers, lighting guy, you know. 
uh, Audrey <laughs> Pertitman, you know, is there, and uh, you walk effort. in, and mm-hmm. uh, you're. Uh, I I remember I had a good moment though, and your whole life you have this. Uh, they always talk about the the you have a champion inside you and a a, a wimp inside you, and my wimp had always ruled my my uh, days, sort of uh, as far as being scared of doing things. But I remember thinking I, I've gotten this far, and nobody – it was like a shrink's office where they brought you in one door and sent you out the other so there was no mm-hmm. overlap. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to run into the, the guy's 1015, and you, you know, and ends up being somebody you know. So the, you, you didn't see anybody come out. This is you just horrible. Go this is, what a horrible room to do comedy in. Yeah. I, I'm not even understanding the reasoning behind this. And, uh, well, the reasoning was it's a live show, and they wanted to see who would crack. Right, uh, I guess. You know, it wasn't about at, at this point they thought you were funny. That was that's mm-hmm. what the first thing mm-hmm. was about. Now it's you walk in and uh, everybody's sitting there looking at you and Lauren says this is and he has to look at a sheet, you know, at that point Dennis Miller. He is a stand-up <laughs> comedian from Los Angeles. Oh god. Uh Dennis you have 8 minutes. What would you like to do? And I remember thinking do around 5 minutes of stuff and three minutes of sinew where you look bulletproof. Don't try to jam eight minutes in here where you're so fucking manic. When you walk out of the room, they think, I'll never put that guy on live television. He's a jabbering magpie. So I at least had that swing thought. I said, do less and kind of rest in between. Mm -hmm. Be a a little bemused by the awkwardness of this exchange. Even references, I, I believe at one point, I can't remember what I said. Uh, but don't try to fill this up. Less is more. Try to look cool. Try to look like you can handle a live television situation. So that's what I did. I came out and I felt pretty good because I wasn't, I, 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 listen, there wasn't a laugh a second, but I got maybe three or five big laughs. And more importantly, I inhabited the downtime in between those laughs uh, with a degree of stillness that I think served me. I come out, and then later they say, uh, you know, everybody breaks out. Uh, it's like little breakout groups. Like, uh, I guess writers want to meet with people. I don't get asked anything. It's a little weird. But then I get asked to go to dinner with Lauren that night. I remember we go to a restaurant, and we sit down for a bit with Jack Nicholson. And uh, imagine for an unknown comedian who was in Baltimore <laughs> doing the road gig the week before, mm-hmm. he's uh, he doesn't tell you on the way. He just says, Dennis, this is Jack, Jack, Dennis, and you sit down. And now I'm really thinking, okay, this is all about being cool at this point. Don't turn into a goofball. So I didn't try to score much. You know, I, I you know, greased a couple bits as they went along, mm-hmm. a little colorature added, nip, tuck, stay on the fringe, flick the jab. But mostly I'm just sitting there letting Lorne know that I'm with Jack Nicholson and I know he's got the interesting stories and I know my place and I'm cool about that. And uh, Boy, there's so many people who don't know that rule. Instinctually, you understood it. Well, but there's so I, I just many people. Thinking, there's no reason for me to be at this table with Jack Nicholson. Right. Keep your mouth shut. Unless it's for me to be cool <laughs> and listen to Jack Nicholson. Wow. And he was great. You know, he he knows the game. It's not like he's gushy over there, but mm-hmm. he's not hanging you out. He remembers your name. He's so cool. And uh, Did he wear the uh, sunglasses inside the restaurant? Yeah, he did have some, uh, uh, not uh, dark, dark, but uh, they were the kind of get a little darker. In and the, who, in who paid? Who paid that night? Did they ask you uh, to throw in Dine your card? Dash. Weirdest <laughs> moment of my life. Nicholson, forearm shivers the waiter. Lauren takes out the maitre d'. We're out on the 
Madison Avenue just running. No. We, wow. Uh, but although what? I have another story with Lord I have to tell you after this real quickly. Okay. Remind me to tell you about my dinner with Chevy and Steve and Lord okay. at the Japanese restaurant. So anyway, <laughs> we blow and they wrap up the next day and it's like the gang's breaking up. You meet these people. It's, it must be like when I've only done a few movies and very infrequently as my character stay through the end of the film. So I don't know, but I always think it must be that, uh, like the end scene in the Norman Jewison's Jesus Christ Superstar, where they've all played the parts and they're getting back on the bus and it's all over. That's what happens the next day after the auditions. I go away and, uh, you know, you're just kind of in Nebulousville. Mm-hmm. And then I see an article in USA Today. I'm on the road somewhere in Virginia, I think, Richmond. And on the entertainment section, they've got the new cast. And obviously, I'm not in it. It's Denitra, Terry Sweeney, Robert Downey, Michael Anthony Hall, Randy Quaid, Nora Dunn, and Jan Hooks and Lovitz. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Victoria. Um, anyway, I'm obviously not there. But, God. Spike, this is when I am so rhino-skinned at this point because I'm relatively new in the game. Mm-hmm. And I'm indomitable. And I remember thinking... Pocket, I'll get the next one. You know, I mean, I look right. at it now in the f- fragility of uh, in my sixties, and I think, geez, I'm, was I just another human? Because you know that sort of thing now would cripple me. <laughs> right, right. You know, like I, I don't even walk off stage completely at the end of a comedy set for fear that I won't get uh, called back. So I only walk <laughs> three quarters and then just turn around and I acknowledge the crowd. I go, sorry, I had to come back anyway. I'm so fragile at this point in my life. I couldn't depend on mm-hmm. you to bring me back. And they laugh. But it, it, back then I just said, screw it. I remember going on stage in Richmond and I got a Letterman shot. And I went to New York. This is maybe another, I had a Letterman scheduled maybe three weeks later to do my Letterman. And I come off and you know where Letterman's, what was it? His studio was on eight or seven. 14. No, we were eight. You're right. It's six. We were on the 14th floor offices. They say Lauren Michaels wants to see you. Yes. I go up to the 17 or wherever the hell we were. And I sit outside where Alice's desk was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wait around an hour and a half. And I know I'm there for something. But I can't let myself. The door opens. They say, Lauren's uh, ready now. I go in. He's sitting at that desk uh, under that green table lamp. You know, that green uh, Mm -hmm. reads like our British guy's uh, (laughs) library. And over his shoulder is the Empire State Building. It's lit up like the tree color. And uh, he looks up from the half glasses and he says, hey, Dennis, would you like to be the weekend update anchor? And I said, yes, I would. He said, well, we'll see you tomorrow at 10 a.m. I turned and I went out and I got loaded. And it turns out that Lovitz was to be the weekend update anchor, but they needed to change him out. He was in so many things the first year that they needed the rock and roll act and the weekend update to have a 15-minute break to put him in prosthetics and that. Wow. And so that's is, how I is got this, weekend update. Is this preseason? Is this like August? Is it? Yeah, before? it's still uh, – we go on the air in a couple of weeks. Right. So And, and you replaced so I get it Christopher late, Guest, right? Um, in, in what regard? As the weekend update anchor. Um, I was the solo weekend update anchor, but I didn't know did before. Chris do it or? I thought Chris oh. Guest was the weekend update. I don't even know who before. did it before me. I, I think the long litany is uh, Chevy and Vincent, Billy and Jane do it. I think Billy Crystal did it for a while. I think Dick Ebersol had a year where he had the guest host actually do it. Uh, each week, the guest host hosted update. Charles Rocket did it. 
and uh, Chris Guest, I, I do think, did it. But I don't know who I think he was. The, was I, 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 I thought I read, I don't recall him, but I thought I read that he was the previous guy. Sorry, got to pay the bills, Dennis. Anyway, think of all the weird things found in cars. I'm not talking about your garden variety, petrified French fries, melted crayons, corpses. I'm talking live snakes, bizarre trinkets, the kind of stuff that just makes you wonder about folks. Another kind of thing that'll make you wonder, but in a good way, are Continental Belts. Bet you didn't know they're OE in tens of millions of Chrysler, Dodge, and Ford GM vehicles that roll off the assembly line. They're also OE on the majority of BMWs and VWs. Now, Continental is launching the aftermarket multi-V belt with the OE pedigree. It's their OE technology series, belts that are fanatically engineered for the perfect fit, form, and function. And Continental has an OE technology series multi-V belt for 98% of the vehicles on the road in the U.S. and Canada. Hey, you get enough surprises working on your car and trucks. A belt should not be one of them. Go with the Continental OE Technology Series Multi-V Belt, the belt with the OE pedigree. To get the full story, visit OETechnologySeries.com. You're listening to Spike's Car Radio. Welcome back. I'm here with Dennis Miller. Let me let me ask you this, though. So after <clears throat> just going back, you, don't you have a manager or an agent or someone you're hounding going, hey, what's happening with this? Was no, there no... I mean, I think I'm with Brad Gray at that point, but... It's not Brad Gray who ends up heading a studio. We're kind of right. young pups, and uh, I, I think he's uh, in the process of befriending Bernie, or Bernie's becoming his right, Obi-Wan right, Kenobi. Right. So maybe there's <laughs> contact there. But listen, when, when you see the cast introduced to the TV, it's not no, like you call know, and say, hey, there's, uh, there's some mistake been made here. You just go, you're so used to getting no's. Well, just, that, you know, I try to be cool. Even right now, I try to be cool for two or three days, and then I start making phone calls. I start calling agents. I start calling uh, executives going, hey, what's happening with this? I'm surprised you were able to kind of sit on that for so long and not not start to inquire. It was easy. I was a beast. I just remember I was like a a monk in a monastery. I wrote (laughs) jokes all day. I walked to get my exercise. Mm -hmm. I didn't get loaded. I'd go on stage and tape two to three shows a night, go back to the room, transcribe them. I'd go over the jokes and just, you know, Mr. Miyagi, the bonsai, I'd work on them, get them perfect, and then I'd do it again. And I just thought, keep doing this till somebody taps you on the shoulder and you look up and you've got a gig. So even when I lost SNL, I, I don't remember being... Uh, I just, hmm, right. didn't get that. I can, uh, always, I can always do this. So you were, how were you, you know, when you say you're transcribing your jokes, did you have someone record with a small tape recorder the jokes? Yeah, yeah. And, I always had a little tape recorder. And then you would, and you would literally write down your whole act and refine it? Well, I would take, listen, uh, there's no greater stylist than Jerry. Jerry's mm-hmm. a syllable count guy. So, yeah, he's like that, right. You, you know, I, I, he was one of my early influences. I just thought, geez, this guy's the state of the art. And as I said, he wasn't Jerry yet, but you could tell he had the pedigree already. And I thought, wow, when I'd sit and talk to him about it and I could see how, uh, well, he wrote beautifully and it inspired me. And I remember sitting down and uh, working my ass off to make these jokes as stylistic and precise. And I had a different staccato than him. I was trying to make it more rat-a-tat-tat and reference-laden. But I do remember attention must be paid. I wasn't the sort of guy who did a Sam Levinson thing once where you go out on stage and say, I had a beagle when I was young. And then like an hour later, the the dog's dead. (laughs) How how do you memorize all that stuff? It seems so... 
your 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 sentences are so chock full of references and words and so you know put together so beautifully. I mean, as someone who doesn't really get out there and do that, how how do you get out? Do you rehearse by yourself yeah, in well, a hotel room? Like speed bag. What do you mean? Um, what does that even mean? I was getting up 65 nights in a row then. Right, right. Okay. It's like Leno said. I said, Jay, why do you work every night? And he said, so I don't have to write it down. And that's it. You just get up there every night and you start at 20 minutes. Then you add a mm-hmm. joke here. And if you're going up the next night, your short-term memory remain, retains the tag. Plus, you've off, as I said, you've looked at your transcription. And it just builds <laughs> out at the beginning. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you're doing an hour. And you don't remember the next line till you're at the end of the previous line. I think it has some. It must be something akin to what a Broadway actor does, where you think, "How do they remember that whole script?" And I, I don't think you have to hold it. It's sort of held in an anteroom till you get to the end of the line, and then the next line triggers. You know, I have this memory of you coming back from stand-up um, when we were on the show and saying, "My act's not playing in the South." Do you remember this? Yeah. What what was going on with that? What was that all about? Was it? Well, I had gotten sucker punched at a Pitt West Virginia bit, uh, football game mm-hmm. in the parking lot. It punched, was a literally rivalry. hit. Yeah, hit by a drunk West Virginia guy. And so I always made it a point to put some mean jokes about West Virginia. <laughs> and I thought I was charming enough that I could pull these off in nope. the deep south. But they were they were protracting it out to mean them too. Like where I, you uh, know, I, I'm thinking of going to the University of West Virginia. I don't know if I'm going to major in numbering or lettering. And you know, like <laughs> you'd, you'd take that on the road, and you'd think, well, I'm in Georgia. You're not going to misinterpret this. They, they know I mean West. And, you know, I was too cocksure of myself. Right. Oh, now I, I just that. did my latest comedy special in Knoxville because I play better in a middle American crowd. I go into big cities now. <clears throat> uh, you know, I look out. There's always somebody dressed as a uh, fucking handmaid's tail with a D cell and a tube sock, you know, and they're always pissed off. I, I play better in small towns now. So it's funny that I, you would have that memory and I just uh, have this special coming up that's coming out in a week and it's shot in Knoxville. This is uh, this well. is uh, fake news, real jokes. Yeah. And, released uh, by the they Comedy Dynamics crowd for me because right. they have a big college in town. Tennessee, but it's uh, not like Berkeley. You know, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't even go to Berkeley right now. They'd be throwing a bike rack through a window. But down there, it just uh, they were a perfect crowd for me. So I've come full circle as life always uh, plays. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know if it in 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 tones wisdom on you or plays jokes on you, but I've come <laughs> full circle. All right. Before we get to the dinner story, uh, we'll be right back with more Spikes Car Radio. Let's talk about Amsoil. You know why I like Amsoil? Because they're a bunch of car people. They're gearheads. They're into all kinds of power sports, and basically they get it. Recently, Amsoil created the guide to increasing horsepower in your vehicle. It has insider tips from some of the best in the business on coaxing more power out of your engine. You can get your free copy at amsoil.com slash spike. While there, find out more about Amsoil's synthetic motor oil, like how Amsoil Signature Series Synthetic Motor Oil delivers 75% more engine protection against horsepower loss and wear than required by a leading industry standard. Go to Amsoil.com spike to get your free insider's guide to increasing your horsepower. You're listening to Spike's Car Radio. We're back with Dennis Miller. All right, well, tell us the Chevy, Steve, and Lauren dinner oh, story. We were in a Japanese place. <laughs> and... Yeah, you know, my mind's blown because I've been on the show for a while now. Right. I'm, I'm, but I also, it's Steve, you know. Now I know Steve now for years, but when I first met Steve, I 
Well, the guy I had trouble talking around him. Yes. Uh, he he was so, he meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. And Chevy had preceded me. And to this day, when somebody says, who's the biggest weekend update anchor, I always say, Chevy Christ, it didn't exist before Chevy. And we didn't do it in any similar way. But Chevy was such a, you know, you got to think back on young Chevy. Who was that funny and that handsome and that cool and that seemingly didn't give a shit about it? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was perfect uh, for that show and that job. So we go into this uh, Japanese restaurant, and uh, we're sitting in the back, and then we go to leave, and it, it's literally inhabited by guys, Japanese businessmen who are over from Tokyo on an expense account. It must be on some, you know, you can eat here thing, because literally there's very few uh, gringos in the joint. It's all these Japanese cats. And we're walking out, and they don't know me from Adam, obviously. I just walk out undetected. Lauren walks out undetected, and you realize... Uh, it, it's its own trippy thing to be mm-hmm. the Gertrude Stein because you're the interlocutor, you're the gateway, you're the purveyor for all this stuff, and you're still kind of uh, anonymous, you know. But I think Lorne gets off on that, you know, mm-hmm. being the Henry Higgins of all this. <laughs> Steve comes and you hear Buzz because now it's Steve and he's in his full bore, you know, white hair. Mm-hmm. But Steve's kind of quiet and a uh, very demure man. So he, you know, gives a nod and keeps walking. Chevy comes up. There's a <laughs> there's a cart with soy and hot mustard in the aisle. Every all you hear is because his physical comedy plays so well across the world. You hear Chevy, 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 and he's walking and waving with that big Chevy look, like Gerald Ford almost. Bam! Right into the cart. <laughs> <laughs> knocks it all over <laughs> goes down with some sort of fake down to one knee bounces up and waves and the entire restaurant Chubby, Chubby, Chubby. <laughs> i thought that's how you play worldwide then wow. we were all it we were all like uh even steve kind of got out on it and chevy not only embraced it, it strangled it it killed me that's so great isn't it great? Isn't that the whole New York comedy scene back then was so vivid? It was so, you know, I, I like you. When I first saw Steve Martin up there in Studio 8H, I froze stiff. I, I could not believe I was in the same hallway with this guy. I know. And and even, we, we went on to, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk No, no, go ahead. Like, Lauren was always so nice. He knew Chevy, or he knew uh, Steve was my hero. Right, right. So we were in his office one day, and Steve was on Letterman that night. And he says, Dennis does Letterman, Steve. And, you know, Steve's very polite. And as he says, why don't you go down with uh, Steve for the show, Dennis? And I go, oh, geez. You know, I'm trying to act cool, but I'm, I'm so nervous thinking about him. I'm always wishing I didn't. So I go down with Steve, and he's so quiet, and he has to run his set. And we sit in one of Letterman's dressing rooms. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those. They're literally the smallest tiniest mm-hmm. most basic uh you know almost like a prison quadrant yeah, room little local in. news cells we go in and steve says i'll be right with you and he asked because he's going over his set list or whatever he's about to do that night and i'm sitting across from him in a four by six papillon cell and he, <laughs> he he's not looking up at me and i'm starting to get an eye twitch i'm so nervous thinking should i say something is he gonna say something <laughs> it's around four minutes in and i have to blow i'm just too nervous i go jeff i or steve i gotta i got something to, and i run out the door and i'm like breathing i'm hyperventilating oh, a little because he got so nervous mm-hmm. that i thought i can't sit here quiet with this guy this is gonna get too weird for me so 
you know, aside from Steve Martin, who was it Tim Conway and Jonathan Winters? Who were the comedians you watched growing up that you really loved? Well, Jonathan Winters is a tiny kid made me understand laughter he had that show where he used to improv with an item mm-hmm. at the end of his show and they i remember they threw him a underinflated uh truck tire that he folded in <laughs> half and made it look like lips and stuck his head out like he was jonah mm-hmm. you know, that he had been eaten by the whale and as a kid i just delighted in that and thought god whatever that is you don't even understand quite what he's doing and mm-hmm. that's what i'd like to do then I go to see a comedian once in Pittsburgh, lovely guy named Kelly Monteith, and I always kiss the ring because Kelly was performing at a place called the Pittsburgh Playhouse, and it was completely anomalous then for stand-up comedians. I, this must have been the birth of the road thing mm-hmm. there. Um, and I went to see him, and I was so enamored. He's, it seemed attainable in a way because he just spoke. It wasn't like Jonathan where you had to be suitably – and I say this uh, – praisingly like a demented you know jonathan looked always so touched by god or speaking in tongues he was like a dervish uh, i i didn't think that way but when i watched kelly i said oh i see he's conversational oh and that's a clever observation mm-hmm. i went around uh, and said i was wondering if i might say hi to mr monteith and these are the things that change your life the guy talked to me for 10 minutes wow and i said i have an interest in this and i don't quite know it's so obscure it's such an obscuria to me. I don't know what to do. And he just gave me some very pragmatic Dale Carnegie tips, but he did take the time. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, the game's afoot, Watson. I go home, I write an act. <laughs> and uh, That quickly. <laughs> well, I, I just sit down, I'm writing out in longhand. Uh-huh. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, Shelley Duvall finding Nicholson's typewriter in The Shining. It's like fucking demented how single space. I, I start going up in clubs. And Pittsburgh, and uh, I have to go to bars at first, and um, I offer the guy, I say, what's your slowest night? And he says, uh, Monday or Tuesday, and I would say, well, if I can bring 45 friends and give you $20 to start, will you let me take your stage for a half an hour? And that's how I first got on stage. Really? He, he would, uh, my friends would order drinks, and then I would give them the twenty. You had forty-five friends at that point. Well, listen, in high school, if you put out the word you were, or you know, your high school friends yeah. were still your college friends, sort of. If you put out the word you were going to try stand-up comedy, yeah, everybody would show up. Forty-five, it was just such an odd thing. Yeah, I guess. And how old are you at this point? Sixteen um, or so? I'm trying to think. I'm somewhere in college. Uh, college. Maybe a little old. It's not a Chris Rock story, but uh, maybe. Somewhere in the latter part of college. So you're and you're studying journalism at that moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And but I already, lying. Christ, I know I have a summer job in journalism covering sports, high school sports, and, uh, and then it carries over into the fall. And they're paying you by the column inch. So anytime you go into your to get paid, and the guy pulls a ruler out, it's like <laughs> check. I gotta get a new job. I'm not. I refuse to wear a name tag, and I refuse to be paid by a ruler. So. Porn stars also have to do that. Male porn stars, the ruler. But when a spike tag. So what, anyway, but wait. I, but I, I just want to get inside your head for a second. So you know, you're in college. Is the, was the journalism something that you loved that you really wanted to do, or no. were you, was it starting to fade? Was that just kind no. of a you know? I, I want to do something. I think I had seen all the president's men, and right. you know, everybody saw movie. Redford running around. Yeah. And, you thought that was cool, but I didn't even buy books the last three years. I, you know, I just you were done. it was it was an easy major, and I, they were sweet people. I don't want to denigrate my college, but uh, I didn't really pay attention. Mm-hmm. And now I was into this. Uh, I was going to try this 
comedy thing. And, what, so, and, and were your parents, did they, were they involved in your life at that point as far as like, hey, I'm going to be a comedian? What do you guys think? No, or, no, I, no I, I, in just... Pittsburgh, you kind of keep that to yourself. I think I told my one brother <laughs> and I said, let's move up to New York for a little bit. Yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm willing to try it. We went up and got our ass kicked. They came back to Pittsburgh and warmed up the audience at an afternoon talk show there and got mm -hmm. some chops in front of people. Anyway, long story, and, and a little too long a story short, I end up um, going back to New York for a little bit and watching Richard Belzer. And when you say what, what comedians made a dent on you, mm -hmm. big dent by Belzer. Because in, in that time in New York, Belzer was like Anton LaVey meets Lenny Bruce. I mean, it was mm -hmm. the Dark Prince, and he took nothing from a crowd. He, it, it's almost like their approbation meant nothing to him. And that wasn't quite where I wanted to get, but I remember thinking, much like Carlin when he, uh, and, and I'm not saying comp competency level in no way, but I remember George told me once that he, watched himself on a Sullivan tape, and I don't even know what tapes they had. There was like daguerreotypes or something. He said, I came out, I was ass-kissy, and I was in a suit, almost a tux, and I, so I was chimping around, and I hated it. Next time you see Carlin on Sullivan, he's you know, in a tie-dyed shirt with, you know, like all of a sudden he's, uh, he's the guy who supplies the band instead of with the band. Right, exactly. And, uh, so I had that moment where I thought, I'm too ass-kissy up there. And Belzer just from afar taught me that it was about alacrity it was about being good at it mm -hmm. it wasn't about being a suck up and that that clicked in my head i just started writing better jokes thinking don't go up you're not mr personality to begin with don't feign your mr personality go up and be so competent that even if they don't like you they're going to kind of have to be bemused by you mm -hmm. so that was important then uh, I go back to Pittsburgh. I start working at the Pittsburgh Comedy Club. Jay Leno comes through. He's very uh, nice to me, and he's such a regular guy. You could fall in with Jay and be best buds within mm -hmm. the space of a weekend working Absolutely. together. He says, you got to get out to L.A. He says, I'll get you an apartment. He sets me up in an apartment. And from there, I you know, become a... Uh, working stand-up. Although, once again, Jerry helped me because I found out that one of the comedians, I won't say his name, it's unimportant, but had come back. I had opened for him at the Pittsburgh Comedy Club and he brought my act back to L.A. And uh, he had my act preceded me. Let's put it that way. I, I remember being in uh, the improv one night once again with Jerry. Oh, come and, on. Who uh, is that? And, and Bud, the guy who's hiring you, Bud Friedman, is wearing a monocle like Werner Klemper. It's like fucking Hogan's here. Is it? I come off stage as a young man. Uh, I don't like you stealing from my headliners. And Jerry's, you know, he was the one who took me in. And I go, oh, Mr. Friedman, you know, you're so scared shitless. You think this guy's like Zeus. And I go, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He's a, uh, you, and he names the guys. You, you know you're doing Bozak. And Jerry, God bless him, says to Bud, oh, for Christ's sake, Bud, you could wake Dennis up in the middle of the night. He'd be funnier than him. Not, he's... <laughs> He said he opened for him in Pittsburgh. He stole the act. So oh once again, Jerry. What is, the, what is the Jay Leno apartment finders uh, situation look like? He's, when he oh. says, I can get you an apartment in L.A., what does that mean? Like I go, Don, it's a, it, it turns out it's at the corner of Fairfax and Wilshire. <laughs> right. Right across from where Biggie Smalls is eventually shot <laughs> at that car museum there. But what is he repping empty? Yeah, at the Peterson. He's got is a he... friend who's going out of town to do a movie or something. Right. He sets me up in this apartment, 
And Spike, I'm telling you, I go down the hall, and it's so hot. My apartment's at the end of the hall, and next to it is the father from Elf, and his his door's open. He's sitting at a bad dinette set with a shot of Stoli or something. Oh, that's awesome. And I just thought, and he's making it. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, I'm in Hollywood for five minutes. I'm so scared. Uh, and I finally see the guy who's on a sitcom. I go, God, that's the guy from Elf. I forget what his name was. That's real. He ended show up business. in the Enquirer smoking crack or something. It was, <laughs> you know, but at that point, he was just sitting there with like a two, four fingers of Stoli, and uh, it was a sweat box where we lived. And he just looked up at me and nodded, and I thought, Christ, what am I getting myself in for? That guy has scored, <clears throat> and he looks disconsolate. Yeah. Wow. And so how do you get up to the comedy club? I, I was just – and I only asked because I was just listening to Leno on Mark Marin, and he was talking about those early days and his apartments when he first moved and he had no place to stay and he's sleeping on the Sleep – uh, yeah, in the parking lot of the comedy store or something. Then he finds a place on the other side of town. He has no money. You know, all of, I, I love the little the, – the struggle. It was easier for me though because I had Jay there already and I have to admit Jay would yeah, – So he was in the apartment with you? No, no, just that he would take you into these he rooms would take you and in. say, okay. uh, or Jerry. Uh, right. Uh, Jerry turns up in my head twice here. I don't remember all the exact details, but uh, there there was, if a comedian was earnest enough and treating it respectfully and had some sort of spark, those guys would uh, triage you in, you know? Right, right. If they thought you were just fucking around, open mic, you mm -hmm. know, not that that's bad, but if you had no commitment to it, if it wasn't going to happen for you, they could tell. I mean, Jerry had the same mind then. Jerry's jokes. When I first saw Jerry, it was the same thing with Stephen Wright, where you got disheartened because you thought, Jesus, that that joke. Y you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like, uh, no, I know. He did that joke about, uh, I remember seeing Jerry and the, 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 they relocated a moose in a national park. And to do it, they shot it with a sedative dart. And they put it in a uh, stirrups and lifted it with a Sikorsky helicopter and flew it. Well, it was out unconscious to 15 miles to another side of the park and then lowered it down. And Jerry said, <laughs> I just remember this so specifically because I thought that's such a funny thing. Where is he going to go with that? He said, and you know, the moose wakes up halfway through the flight, looks down, he's flying all of a sudden. He thinks, what was in that berry? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a joke in my head. I thought, oh, if I could ever write a joke that paid off yeah. in such a funny, unforeseen way. What's a perfect <laughs> nibble for a moose? A berry. A berry. A hallucinogenic berry. It just he's still me. like that. No, he's very keyed into the funniest words and putting those funny words at the end of his jokes. I just saw him at the Greek. Will Ferrell had a benefit over there, and we were backstage. and said, all right, you have uh, – what was it? Uh, 14 minutes, 15 minutes. So uh, a guy left, little guy leaves, and he goes, uh, I'm going to see how many jokes I can squeeze into 15 minutes. And at the end of seven, he had jammed so much comedy. He had just tweaked up his speed about 25%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were a lot of comedians that came on before him. And, boy, did he jam that audience. It was, uh, you know, he's just a comedian yeah, like a no other comedian a master yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's an all-time great i said what did you uh, how did you do that now, how did you speed up jokes and still keep the laughs in there without you know 
He explained well, it's it. A but subtle it may, acceleration. Yeah, you know, you can't get herky jerky with it, or it becomes all too visible. But listen, he had the greatest one line payoff ever. I like berries, but the, folks, it's it's hammered into the Parthenon of modern American comedy. The joke about the cab driver. I don't know what you need right. a cab driver in New York. I think a name with seven. <laughs> and then the, the I just remember it was seven consonants in a row, and then the inner the elemental sign for boron, <laughs> boron used to just wipe me out. Yes, that he would because I know I don't know I don't know if Jerry has any science in his background, but I could just see him going down the elemental charts. I yes. need a two syllable. <clears throat> I don't need the big one. Uh, Borat. I don't uh. think he would have done that. I think he whenever whenever I've been in a room writing with him and and someone wants to Google something or look it up, oh, he'll, he'll go, don't look it up. It. Don't look it up. Uh. You know, he likes to pull it out of your head. He likes it to be there. And maybe there's some thinking behind there that that if that if we think of it, then the audience will recognize it and understand it. No, that, that's that looking up was too. always cheating when we were writing the show, too. Don't don't look it up. It's that's that's cheating. You know, we try to pull it out that way. Well, well, listen, him and him and Larry meeting each other was uh, literally like, you know, it's like the Lennon and McCartney yeah. comedy. Yeah. Because Larry was uh, a bit like uh, a more uh, contentious cat when he was in New York than Jerry. I wouldn't quite go as simplified as good cop, bad cop. But mm -hmm. Larry was a good guy, too. But he, Larry, uh, he, he, Jerry was always the easiest cat in his own skin. Jesus, he knew what he liked. He had a code of beliefs when we were unknowns. Most of us were still grasping at straws, like, what are we about? And Jerry already seemed uh, fully bloomed when he hit the stage in that. Uh, Larry was so funny. I mean, geez, what was that? He used to do that joke. I, hand jobs too. uh it's too a uh, doer a term. I, I need it's a hand fiesta, a hand parade. <laughs> you know, so the jokes were great. But if it didn't get what he thought it would get, he would get, get angry. Pissed. Yeah, and, and uh, parading the audience. Yeah, so yeah. those two coming together literally is a little like Larry is the Lennon guy who's got rougher edges, and Jerry is the McCartney guy who's just a little smoother about it. All right, man. Well, two I, geniuses. I know you get a run before you go. I know you're not a car guy in any way. Yeah. What, what do you drive? What do you drive? What does Dennis Miller drive for a car? Well, I have a, uh, a, I have the biggest car I've ever had. It's a BMW 750 something. I don't know much about cars, but I do know they're they're performing uh, the, the the fantastics in my back seat. That's a proscenium <laughs> stage arch. That's how big it is. There can be people in the car that I forget about. That's how far it's they are BMW away. BMW Seven me. Series. <laughs> yes, it is so big. And you know what? I know nothing about cars. But uh, you, I but you drive that. it, right? You drive it. You don't have a driver. Yeah, sure, I'm not an asshole. Remember, Danny Storch had that great joke about the rich guy who doesn't drive himself and he commits suicide. He says, James. Turn off the bridge. <laughs> there you go. The rich guy killing himself. Well, All right. Spike, I'm happy for you, brother. And you're great at this. Thank you're, you, you're man. You're an, uh, an easy lope, my friend. I was very nervous interviewing you. You, you know, you're, you're, you loom very big in my, yeah. in my comedy life. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours. His new, your new special, let me just give you, give you a plug for the folks listening. The new comedy special is Fake News Real Jokes. will be released by the Comedy Dynamics Network on November 6th, premiering on Amazon, iTunes, Steam, Google Play, and several other major platforms. The podcast, he's a fellow podcaster, ladies and gentlemen, here at Podcast One, is called the Dennis Miller Option. 
new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Brother, you've been kind to me. Have a good one. All right. Talk soon. Good memory, Spike. We had a good time, brother. All right. See you. Later. Real quick before we go, if you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse everybody, even you, Zuckerman. All you're looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing... True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories. Before you even get to the dealership, True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of your home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Thanks for listening to Spikes Car Radio. Download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Hey guys, it's Jack Vanek from The Lady Gang and I am sitting here with true crime TV producer and my best friend, Alexis Linkletter. And we are so excited that we are finally launching our true crime podcast called The First Degree right here on Podcast One. And each week we are going to bring you the craziest true crime stories and talk to the people who are one degree away from each of these crazy events. And we've dragged crime journalist Billy Jensen along for the ride and he can't get rid of us. Join us on The First Degree every Wednesday on podcast1.com and the PC1 app. Also remember to rate and review. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.